0: Welcome. So, what we're doing in Ring the Bells of Silken Ring is looking at those things uh, in our lovely Christian tradition that we want to still feel can be rung and bring people and draw people and attract them, because that's what you know the church bell was all about. Mike, was it not originally? Uh, and which things, if we go to ring them, are broken and, frankly, should be broken and should stay broken. And maybe out of those old bells that no longer ring, we can melt them down and fashion something uh, brand new. Not better than the old ones, but something that's different. So that's what we're about. So I'm going to start off with uh, reading you a poem. Um, And I wrote this around the time of of a friend's death. Uh, It wasn't really about her death, though I read it at her funeral. Uh, But it's really about where I think we stand uh, at the moment. Uh, Because what I think Steve and the the folk here are doing is something that's really, really courageous. Uh, And it's so courageous Particularly in the context of Northern Ireland, where our faith and our religion and our Christianity is very hidebound and, and cramped, that we need constantly, I think, to be encouraged to be courageous, uh, to be encouraged to be happy heretics, if that's what we're going to be. For goodness' sake, if you're going to be a heretic, be a happy one. No point being a sour-faced one. Uh, but this was a, the, the poem. It's called West Light. Children look to the dawn, fearful of the night, and dying souls hopeful of one more day. But we are no longer children and should not dread the dusk or cling to morning sunshine when life and faith were fresh. It is evening only if we choose to look towards the west, rooted where we stand and let the shadows lengthen. The light has not grown dim. It is seeking new horizons, and we must travel with it, for we must travel on. And that's the journey, folks, that I think we're on. The light has not grown dim. It's moved on. And if we stand where we are, the evening shadows will draw in, and we'll find ourselves in night, but not if we follow the light, not if we follow over the horizon where the light is going. Now, I can't remember, what is it? If you're traveling on an airplane, if you're going to America, and you take off when it's getting dusk, you can sort of chase the sun, isn't that right? So I think if you're going that way. So it's that sort of idea that uh, was in my mind. So... Tonight, we're looking at the Bible in one hand and what I'm calling the Scriptures in the other, and how we can make the journey from holding the Bible tightly and firmly, or it holding us, to reading the Scriptures openly with excitement and with new thoughts and with new light. And each of our journeys that we're going to take over the next four weeks is moving from something to something. And the something that we're moving to isn't totally different from the thing we're moving from, but it's a very different way of looking at it. So I'm going to start off by clearing a bit of ground that's going to hold us into good stead, I hope, for not just tonight, but for the next four weeks. So I won't repeat it every week, because frankly, that would be even more boring than it might already be. I want to quote a really well-known philosopher, a very important man called John Cleese. You all know him, Uh, the, the Ministry of Funny Walks. Years ago, I tried to do some Irish dancing Uh, As an adult, my kids were very good Irish dancers. They got medals in the world championships and so on. Uh, And when I tried it, they said, Daddy, you look like John Cleese doing the Ministry of Funny Walks. That was the beginning and end of my career at Irish dancing. Uh, And if I was ever trying to do Strictly Come Dancing, it wouldn't go any further. John Cleese said this. I think it's an absolutely brilliant piece of wisdom and philosophy. He said, you do realise as you grow older that almost nobody knows what they're talking about. Isn't that right? When we're young, we think people know what they're talking about. Uh, What's even worse is some people think they know what they're talking about. So what I'm talking about here is genuinely embracing agnosticism. Genuinely saying, we don't know. Hardly anybody, maybe even nobody, really knows what they're talking about. And when we let go of that anchor of certainty which very many people find really attractive, don't they? And many other people don't find attractive, but they're scared stiff of letting go. Because what's the alternative? Well, in some manifestations of the Christian faith, the alternative is sinking, isn't it, without the life belt? Until somebody comes and throws you a life belt and saves you. But I want to suggest that the alternative to clinging on to this Log of certainty is to enter into a commitment of exploration that leads to a rediscovery of values and beliefs and a reappreciation of wonder that you might never think possible. And I want to suggest really, really strongly, and I've said this here before, Steve, in, in, in this building, that I think the future of Christianity not just here, but really right across the world, is going to fall into three bits. One bit is going to be a retreat into fundamentalism because some people need and desire and want that certainty. Fine. For anybody who needs, desires, or wants that, literally, God forbid, that I should try to disturb or wreck or ruin that. That's where they are. The next big bit will be made up of people who just go. They just say, no, that's it. It's not for me. I don't want it. I just have done with it. And I think the third and potentially the really significant and important possible way that Christianity can go is by embracing a new spirit of exploration. Uh, Embracing, if you like, Christian agnosticism. Not knowing what's right or true or absolute. Oh, what does that sound like? There's a word, begins with F. Oh yes, faith. Haven't we twisted faith all all round? Where faith means adhering to something that's absolute definite, uh, absolutely laid down. It's there, it's written. And you have faith in what is certain. Well, having faith in what is certain is... Arthur, what's that big word? An oxymoron, isn't it? How can you have faith in something that is certain? You have knowledge in something that is certain. You have faith in something that is uncertain. You have faith in something that you've got to try out. You've got to step and hope that that's a stepping stone you're walking on, not a crocodile uh, or a lily pad that's going to make you sink. That's the journey and the adventure uh, and and the wonder of faith. And that's where I think there is a glorious, new, wonderful, positive, embracing form of the Christian tradition, the Christian history that you and I can be part of and that Steve is is very much championing here. And in that journey, uh, in previous talks that I've given here, I've said, you know, how do we come to terms with anything? And I've suggested that we really use three things. We we use our intuition. We're drawn to things. We just know things. We just feel things. We listen to a glorious piece of music. We see a sunset. We look at something that is beautiful or we sense something that is mystical. And that's giving us a, a sense of knowing, a sense of reality. That's intuition. Our experience... And nobody can ever argue with your experience. And then we have our reason. And in the history of Christianity, and particularly in this part of the world, what we've tended to do is this. We said it's all based on reason. And it's not allowed, Mike, to be based on experience. Except, of course, the experience of the people in the Bible. Because their experiences are the ones that we're using our reason to sort of get around. And as for intuition, well, that, you know, that's not for us. That's really for the new age, and that's for the Eastern religions, and that's for people who are just a bit wacky. I want to suggest, and I've done this and talked to literally hundreds of people when I've talked to them about really, really, really what motivates you in life. What gives you a sense of where you're going? Actually, it's the other way around. It very often really begins and is based on our intuition. And it's backed up or changed or steered by our experience and then our brains catch up a little bit later and we try to make sense of it. And I want to suggest that actually it's a much more positive and better way forward. Trust your intuition. Embrace your experience. And then use your brain to try to make some sense of it. But where we've got, and this is running ahead into next week or the week after a, a bit, but we've got it the all way around, the wrong way around. We, we tend to say, Roy, you experienced something. Tell me about it. Whatever it happens to be, if it's to do with religion or faith or or, or, uh, whatever it might be, uh, in this part of the world, we then tend to say, no, no, that can't be right because that doesn't fit my theology. Or you've got to understand it in a particular way because this is what we believe. And I want to suggest, and I think this is next week or the week after, we want to blow that out of the water. And we want to say, what is your experience? Be honest about it. Be truthful to it. Don't shy away from it. Don't let anybody rock you from it. And if it doesn't fit into somebody's theory, what's going to change their theory or your experience? I'm going to suggest it's got to be the theory. And that, after all, is actually how science works, or it's meant to. It's meant to be. We've got a theory. Good. Oh, it's working so far. Oops that doesn't fit the theory. Where would Einstein have got if his mathematical models hadn't fitted the existing theory or whatever it may be? So that's the sort of journey we're going to be on uh, over the next few weeks anyway. Uh, And I'm going to focus mostly, in fact, exclusively on the Christian tradition uh, and the the Christian faith, uh, only because uh, I want to be respectful I have not been brought up a Buddhist or a Muslim or a Hindu. So how can I really know about those traditions? Uh, I've been steeped in Christianity, quite literally baptized umpteen times. Uh, I've been through uh, most expressions of the Christian church that you could possibly imagine, um, and maybe even one that I half invented myself. And I've been kicked out of most of them, even the one I half invented myself. So that's all right as well. but I've been steeped in the Christian tradition and steeped in you know, Western philosophy and agnosticism. That's my home territory. Uh, and out of respect to others who are steeped in their traditions, I can't speak about them. So I hope there's somebody... In each of those traditions, somewhere around the world at the moment, saying something similar to what I'm saying, but they're saying it out of their tradition. And I suspect that for most of us in this room, uh, that's the tradition that that we've been in as well. Okay, so why start then with the Bible? Uh, It sort of seems if we're looking at, you know, the the bells that still can ring, what do we want to hold on to in our Christian tradition? Uh, Why not start with Jesus or why not start with God? Um, Or why not start with uh, salvation or life after death? Uh, And the reason why I'm starting with the Bible is that no matter where you go in all of those other topics, before you get very far, people will say, say? thank you so much, (laughs) fallen in love with you instantly. What does the Bible say? Or perhaps even more stridently, but the Bible says. So... It's great in theory, you know, starting off as as lots of these wonderful theological tomes do with uh, the doctrine of God, the doctrine of salvation, the incarnation and so on. Um, But so much of that is is based really on what we understand the Bible to have said. Uh, And of course, what we understand the Bible to have said is very often based on what we understand the Bible to be. So, the Bible is, if you like, the chief lens through which all our understanding of faith has been viewed for us and for generations uh, of Christians in this country uh, almost forever. So, uh, we have vir- virtually every church that says, uh, well, what we believe and what we teach is based on the Bible, uh, or at the very least, uh, folk will say, well, what we teach. Uh, certainly can be found in the Bible or is consistent with the Bible. So that seems to me to be the right place to begin. So some of you who have been at some of the seminars, and this is a different style where I'm not putting slides up and we're discussing them as as I go along, will recognise that uh, the next question I'm going to ask is, if things are to be based on the Bible, what is the first big question we want to ask then? Thank you so much falling in love with everybody tonight. Which Bible? Because it's so often taken as self-evident, isn't it? The Bible says. Now, those of you who might have been in one or two of these things before, I'm going to test your uh, knowledge. Uh, I'm not going to go through all the versions and variations of the Bible that there are, but the Protestant Bible. How many books in the Protestant Bible? (laughs) Oh, my goodness what have you done to these folks, Steve? They don't even know. They don't even know. This is terrible. Yeah, Mike McCann. Come on, sir. 66. Very good. Uh, how many? Actually, I've got the notes here, so I can't go wrong. How many in the in, in the Roman Catholic Bible? 72. 70, almost two. 73. Uh, in the Greek Orthodox and the Orthodox uh, Church's tradition whoa <laughs> put the break on 94 79 79 and our great friends that we looked at before the Ethiopian Orthodox Church they topped the bill I think with 81 so when we say uh, our, ba- our faith is going to be Bible based or what we're believing is what the Bible teaches which Bible? who's right? Now, instantly we jump into huge discussions. Is it the 66 books of the canon that that the Anglican Church and the Presbyterian Church and the Reformed Churches generally hold to? The Lutherans just about managed to hold on to it, but they wobbled over a few but pulled them in uh, at the last minute. The 73 uh, of the the Roman Catholic Bible that I grew up with, the 79 that some of my friends in the Orthodox churches adhere to, I don't know any Ethiopian Orthodox Christians. Otherwise, I'd love to say I've got a friend there who reads all 81 books, but I'm sure I'll find one before my uh, time is eventually up. And the thing is this, uh, all of those versions of the Bible were settled within 10 years of Jesus' crucifixion on the cross. Isn't that amazing? True or false? false. How false? How very false? How many centuries false? <laughs> so we took at least 300 years before the core uh, of, of the New Testament was settled on, at least 100 years before you know, the core of the core... Was formed. And we had Martin Luther uh, in, this, in the 1500s still going, I'm not so sure about Revelation. And as far as that epistle to James is concerned, it's the epistle of straw. And you know, so, what, what was it that led people to identify the Bible as the Bible? Well, it was their theology. So it's a real chicken and egg thing. So on one hand, you've got, you know, the different books that are written in the Bible. And when we say books, of course, they're not books. They're very, very short documents, you know, little segments of, of, of documents. She so had all of these flying around uh, in the first hundred years or so of the Christian church. Uh, I think you had a wonderful cauldron of thought and exploration and argument and discussion and craziness and insight and all of that going on but of course what happens in any institution it becomes what institutionalized. (laughs) An institution becomes an institution. And an institution can't exist unless some people begin to get towards the top of it and impress their thoughts. And, And then we get something that's orthodox and something that's heretical, something that's inside, something that's outside. And when we won't look at all the big doctrines of the Christian church over the next few weeks, but if we were, we'd discover that there were always insiders and outsiders. And sometimes the margin between them when it came to the votes was very, very small. And sometimes the votes that would decide one doctrine over against another had a little bit of strong-arm tactics and a few riots in the streets uh, and a few waylaying of people so they couldn't get to the voting chamber to vote in order to make sure that this is the right doctrine or this is the book that ought to be in the... Bible, which eventually it became and which wasn't, and 1500 years later Martin Luther is still going I'm not so sure so how do we get from that, which by the way is a glorious process, it's a process I am 100% behind and I would go for 94 books, (laughs) never mind the 81 if we could get them, you get all these wonderful, brilliant writings so expressive so exploratory, so mind-blowing, and they get cramped down into a bound volume of 66 or 73 or 79 or 81 or whatever it might be. And everything that is spontaneous and rich and vibrant and exploratory and full of wonder, and scary, and dangerous, and good, and bad, and mistaken, and full of incredible insight, gets squeezed, and squashed. And I think that's a shame. That's really what tonight is about. I think that is a crying shame. And one of the things I think that we need to do is shake ourselves loose of that thought. And look again, and look afresh, not at the cramped, bound volume that has got with it now. So much baggage, so much theology, so much, this is how you must understand it, this is how you must read it, this is what it means, blah, 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 blah. And going back to the writings. Because that's what scriptures mean, isn't it, Steve? Steve? just means the writings. Isn't that great? The writings. So we've got somebody that we call the Apostle John writing about hypostasis. Buy the book if you're watching. (laughs) Writing something that is so rich it would blow the socks off you. You've got Paul furiously trying to make uh, his life in his understanding of Judaism make sense in the light of this incredible spiritual encounter or series of spiritual encounters and then trying to fit that into a world where he's meeting uh, people who believe in household gods and Temples and Greek mythology, and he's trying to go. Whoa! How do I? How, what, what have I got to say? What have I got to say to to my friends who were Pharisees with me about my experience of what I believe is the continuing risen presence of Jesus, whom I really did not like a lot. And how can I say something to them that's going to make sense to these people uh, who have this rich uh, mythology? And, you know, let's not pretend that people uh, back in the days of Paul believed the mythology any more than we believe the mythology. Uh, you know, they, they weren't going, oh yeah, you know, Aphrodite did something in uh, Paris and Troy and all of that. They knew what they were. They knew what myths were. But how do, how if I'm Paul, how do I... Pull it all together. And you do it by blowing your brain. Which is pretty much what Paul does when you read him. He has blown his brain. And he says the most outrageously, incredibly brilliant things, trying to bring all of that together. And what have we done with this, Steve? Well, what we've said is, well, the the Pauline doctrine of eschatology is... (laughs) Put, he, news, news flash, Paul did not have a doctrine of eschatology. How do we know? Because he changed his mind. You read what he says in, in his first letter to the Thessalonians. Uh, and he's ready to go. When Jesus comes, jump. We're all going off in the air with him. By the time he, he gets uh, later on to... Uh, writing to the Romans, uh, he's sort of going, uh, yeah, I won't mention eschatology at all. When he's writing to the Corinthians, it's, uh, you know, terrible times are coming upon us, so we better be ready because the Lord will rescue us from it. He's working it all out. And all the time he's trying to be true to his experience of what he believes is the continuing presence of the risen Jesus in his life that turned him upside down. It's brilliant. But we've lost the brilliance of it. We have lost the brilliance of it. Mike, the epistle today is written in the second letter of St. Paul to the Corinthians chapter 12. Humdy, 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 humdy. What does Paul say in Second Corinthians chapter 12? Anybody? You've ruined everybody, Steve. Nobody knows. He goes, I am being slaughtered. This is killing me. This business of traipsing around the world telling people about Jesus is killing me. But do you know something? He's going to get me through it. Either his grace <laughs> is sufficient for me, is the bit that, that, that we hear. Uh, but we don't get the vibrancy. We don't get the excitement. We don't get, he's writing it. Uh, he's writing to the Galatians. He's going, look with what big letters. This is what he says. Look with what big letters I'm writing. He's, up, he's beside himself. Uh, even one of these more considered passages um, where, where he's, he's talking about the, the, the Corinthians, first Corinthians, they're fighting with each other. He goes, oh, thank God I never baptized anybody. Oh, sh- shoot, I did. I did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. S- Stephanus, I did, I did. I did baptize him, yeah. Oh, and his family. Oh, Lord, yeah, there was somebody else as well. (laughs) So what are we saying here? The Holy Spirit forgot. See, we we get a certain view of the Bible. We've got real trouble with a passage like that. Not if we've got the writings. Red hot. Paul writing, pouring his heart out. uh, And in the midst of an argument, he's going, I never did that. Well, yes, just a bit. Isn't that what we do? Is that what we do? Why didn't he score it out? Why didn't he go back and go, oh, well, actually, you know, in 2,000 years' time, people are going to be reading this uh, and they're going to have theories about verbal inspiration and they're going to have theories of, you know. know." That wasn't what he was writing. He was writing his guts out, worried about the churches, the communities that had gathered around his original teaching and so on, uh, concerned about trying to communicate the Reality of God to People, brilliant writings, brilliant writings, every, every single one of them, absolutely fantastic, but we, we've sort of ruined them because we can't read them as if they were just brilliant things to read. We've got our theologies and our church traditions and our sermons and what we're meant to do and, well, we'll get on to that a little bit later. So one of the things I'm saying here is is, is this, that when we look at the writings, are these people who are writing because God is revealing something to them and they're being really careful about communicating that to us? Or are these people who are burning with passion, who are discovering more and more new things about the reality of the world, the universe, life, themselves, God. And we'll come to the word God in about two weeks' time, so we'll just park that there for for the moment. I'm going to suggest that what we have in the writings are journeys of discovery, not accounts of revelation. We've done it, Steve. We've broken everything. We've broken everything, closed the building down, no point turning up. <laughs> because our whole view of the Bible, in this part of the world at least, and especially within the Protestant tradition, but it's there within the Catholic tradition and the Orthodox traditions as well, the whole view is these are accounts of revelation, God, however God is understood and in the Christian tradition, God is generally understood, let's, let's be honest about it, as just like a really, really big and good version of us. You know, God is a person, but oh, that's in two weeks time. Um, and that God is getting it, Mike, into your thick skull. This is what I'm like. But I've got to do it bit by bit by bit because let's face it, you know, the, these guys in the Old Testament were a bit thick. So we'll just give them a wee bit. And then we'll give him a wee bit more, a wee bit more, a wee bit more. And then by the time we get to Paul, boom, he's getting the whole job lot. Now, what if that's not the case? Maybe, okay, maybe it is. Maybe it is. Maybe that's right. And that's what you will find in virtually every church in the country, apart from Steve's and a few others. Mightn't be what every minister in the country believes in, in his or her heart, but that's what you'll hear. It's revelation. But what if it's not? What if it's discovery? What, Ivor? If it's discovery, what do you think? It's, it is brilliant. Oh, I'm getting all excited. <laughs> this, is why, this is different from the seminars we did. This is really trying to find stuff to get excited about and focused on and stuff where we can say, we've actually got something really, really good, not necessarily new because nothing is new under the sun, but something really good to say. What if these writings are writings of discovery. Where, where do you think the evidence actually leads us? Read these documents. And I'm gonna say that having read them for decades, I'm, I'm probably reading them more now than I've ever done. My view is that the evidence, when you read them, they read much better as documents of discovery than documents of revelation. And if somebody, excuse me, reads them and goes, no, 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 I I read them, I see them as revelation, great. I have no no desire to impose anything on anybody or to suggest anything other than share what I'm sharing. But I think when we take, you know, that is crossing, this is crossing the Rubicon here, Steve because it sounds like we are abandoning everything that many many sections of the christian faith and tradition have been based on it's got to be revelation what if it's discovery no i think the evidence actually if we just take these wonderful documents forget what we've been told forget what we've been people have said to us you've got to believe you must believe Put that all to one side. Read them fresh as documents of discovery. I think they are, in my experience, unparalleled. Now, I say that with respect to people who have other scriptures, because what I said at the beginning is I don't know them well enough. Sir... Okay, really, really good question. The question is the difference between revelation and discovery as I'm using them. Um, I suppose, in a sense, theologically, if you like, what I'm saying, revelation is a movement, a a distinct, willful movement from God to us. So God is communicating to us um, and that's God revealing God's self. Discovery, I'm really suggesting, the movement is the other way around. Uh, It's us moving towards God, discovering, exploring, probing, finding. And of course, if somebody wants to say they're both, that's fine. (laughs) That's grand. But if it becomes in some people's minds a question of emphasis, or or even just looking at things differently, that's fine as well. And that rather depends on what our view of God might be. So that's the essential distinction that that, 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 I'm, that I'm making. So what I'm suggesting is that we look at what this might mean if these wonderful writings essentially are the products of discovery. What difference might that make? Well, I'm gonna suggest it it gives us the freedom to take a deep breath and relax about the whole thing before getting very excited about what we're going to find. Steve, we don't have to make everything fit together. We don't. We don't have to work out how many blooming angels were at the tomb. Was it none, two, one, what well, nah, nah. Who went, to, you know? We don't have to work out. Well, when Paul says, I'm saved by faith, not works, and James says, I'm saved by works, not faith alone, you're going, oh, right. I know if I stand in my head and keep one leg facing north and one leg facing south, I'm sure I can work out how I can bring those things together because I must bring them together if they're both revelation. Or God is playing some sort of mean trick, you know. You just just make it plain. We don't have to do that. We go, let's go with James. Let's find out what James is discovering. Let's go with Paul. Let's find out what Paul's discovering, John's discovering, all the rest of them. We don't have to make it fit together. The discrepancies don't matter okay all right it would be a bit of a problem i suppose if someone were to have said my i'm discovering this and i believe jesus was a really bad person and i'm discovering and i believe jesus was a really good person but that's not what we find anyway so theoretically we don't have to have to worry about that do you know what else we don't have to do we don't have to apologize we don't have to apologize we don't have to apologize for slavery in the bible It's there. We don't have to try to do somersaults to say, well, it's sort of acceptable. No, it's not. It never was, but it was there. Don't have to apologize for that. We just have to accept it. And see, where do we go from there? What do we learn from the experience of people who lived in a society where slavery was normal? acceptable was even viewed as being good we don't have to do somersaults to try to pretend it was good or make some sort of modern day apology for it we don't have to apologize in the old testament God said wipe them out wipe them out this is God's is it is it I'm the prophet Samuel I'm telling you God is saying wipe them out men women children animals No, keep the animals because they might be useful Don't have to apologise for that. Don't have to try to make it good. Don't need to do somersaults. You just go, whoa. That's pretty raw. That's pretty rough. My goodness, what sort of world were they living in? What on earth were they discovering or what did they think they were discovering about God that a prophet would say, this is what he thinks God God wants him to do you know then what we have also the freedom to do we have to, the freedom to say whoa you got that one wrong didn't he I can understand why he got it wrong but he got it wrong no it was not God's plan God's idea to kill little babies to take your little ones and dash them against the rock Psalm 137 But if we're cramping everything into this preordained text that somehow is all God's movement from God to us, rather than people through this incredible history of the people of Israel, amazing history of the early followers of Jesus, when they're trying to tell us and tell one another what it is they're discovering, it's all rich. Every single bit of it is rich. But we don't have to agree with it all. We don't have to even, you know. The Bible says was not what we said near the start. You know, if we get get anywhere in, in in this part of the world, uh, and someone will say, "What does the Bible say? Or what, what is what is biblical teaching?" And what is the answer I'm suggesting? If someone says. What does the Bible teach about anything? War. The answer I'm suggesting is nothing. The Bible teaches nothing because the Bible doesn't teach. The Bible is this wonderful collection of freedom giving exploration and thought and reality and honesty and corruption and transcendence. And we don't have to try to ring it all together and weave it all together into say, the biblical teaching is. The biblical teaching on virtually anything is many, 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 many fold. And we don't have to harmonize it all. We don't even have to try to harmonize it all. And this is very important, I think, for our country. We don't have to try to make other people adhere to the Bible's rules and regulations and commands and precepts. Because in most cases, in very many cases, there aren't. They don't exist. They're, they're, you know, we have Jesus saying wonderful things about, you know, love your enemies. I, mean, I think that's just Fantastic. And then we've got in the Old Testament, no, go out and kill your enemies. So we don't have to press them together or we don't have to distill them and say, okay, we've read the Bible, we've got everything that it says and we've got out of it a statement of faith and alongside a statement of faith, a code of conduct and everybody has got to adhere to it. Rather than that, we go... Whoa, what a mess they lived in. But thank God they lived in a mess. And thank God they explored. And thank God they blew their brains trying to make some sort of sense of it. And yeah, I think that, yeah, they were a bit, as my granny used to say, you know, off the eggs and onto the straw uh, here. Uh, but oh my goodness, were they on point there? And there are places, you know, when you read through in the, in the Old Testament prophets and even some of the other books, you're going... How on earth did they manage to write that in that context centuries ahead of where you think they might have been living in the sort of world that they were living in? And remember, for a lot of the Old Testament, the world that people lived in, it was like living in in Syria or Iraq under the control of ISIS. I mean, that's how bloody and brutal and terrible and hard it was to live If I was living there, I would would have two thoughts. One, how can I stay alive? Two, how can I escape? That would be it. I wouldn't be thinking philosophy, theology, loving enemies, loving neighbours, nothing of the sort. I just wonder, how can I stay alive and how can I get out? But in that sort of world, they were writing these amazing, wonderful, incredible things. And I want to say that there's, there's a real richness, richness in our discovery, getting their Roy, of what they discovered. It's incredibly rich. It's just, you know, I hope by, at this stage of riching, I want to go home and read something in the Bible. <laughs> but I want to read it with new eyes. I want to read it with them. I want to read looking over Paul's shoulder as he's writing this and like all good things you need to read it more than once like all well written things you go whoa didn't get it the first time didn't get it the second time whoa I'm still What? Well, didn't see that oh my I wonder was actually was Paul actually thinking that or was that something subconscious did he even know he was as good as he was or did Ooh. Paul, come on, come on, come on. You know, when, when you say you wish your enemies would go and castrate themselves, mm, you're not being your best self there, I reckon. I don't quite think that's a word of re- revelation or whatever it would be. But that incredible, amazing richness as we discover what they discovered and we let it hit us. And here, I think, is, is where we're going with Roy, or if it's not, it's where I'm going, and then you bring me back to where you're going. It's the real, it's the challenge then of that discovery. I think this is the most challenging thing we can do, the most challenging way we can read these writings, these scriptures. And of course, you can do it with other things as well. I mean, other brilliant things have been written, but, You know, these have stood the test of time very well and they have shaped and formed lots of people's lives and that's all we're talking about uh, in, in this particular context. And it's entirely right to say, oh my goodness, that's inspired. Because very often it's beyond inspired. So I understand that folk might go, okay, you know, if we've got this very strict understanding of the Bible as revelation then hmm, we've got to make a lot of things fit together. We've got to have certain threads running through it. And we've got to say that every bit of it is God speaking down to us, albeit through human beings. That's really hard to do. But at least you know where you stand. Where you stand is, I can't do that. So I've got to trust somebody else to do it for me. And that somebody else who's going to do it for me is going to be my priest or minister. And having been a priest and a minister, I can tell you most priests and ministers will go, well, I can't do that either. So I've got to rely on the theologians or the teaching of the church or the statement of faith or whatever it may be. But at least it's it's sort of solid. But what if it's discovery, Arthur? What, What do we do then? Then it's up to you. We're all lazy. <laughs> yeah, and a problem can be laziness. That's right. Or if we're not lazy, it can be a bit scary. So it's like, okay, Paul is on his wonderful journeys of discovery, and he he, he changes what he writes. You know, from the start to the end of his journey, uh, the gospels are are not just four ways of telling the same story. In some ways, they tell different stories. Uh, They've got very, very different insights, all of that stuff. The onus then, I think, is on us to say, "Okay, I'm going to look over the shoulder, I'm going to try to see how this was being felt and experienced and read as far as I can by the person who was writing it. Of course, we can only play at that to an extent. We can only approximate it because we can't be there. But we can at least try to have that empathy. Then we've got to go. I think, okay, I'm stepping up to the plate. I am taking responsibility for seeing, hearing, sensing, feeling the voice of God in this. What in my experience chimes with their experience? What is it that they've discovered, that I've discovered? What is it that they've discovered that I've discovered something different? Better? What is it that I would think, well, actually, if you're writing that now, you wouldn't write that now. And that's a huge responsibility if we want to take it. But if we do want to take it, just watch that rocket lift off. We are on a mind blowing, soul expanding, spirit enticing trip of a lifetime and beyond. And that's what it means to be biblical. Say it loud and clear, brother. (laughs) That is what it is to be biblical because that's what they did. Yeah, exactly. That's what they did now somebody might say well children you're going to have lots of different interpretations june are we not we're going to have lots of different interpretations well thank god that isn't the case now thank god there are no different interpretations within the christian churches as we stand The last count, I think, was it 51,000 different Christian Protestant denominations. They keep changing every year. You know, it's it's probably gone exponentially through the roof. Lockdown has probably brought lots of more through through the pandemic. Look that's what's happening anyway. That's what's happening anyway. Going through this, you know, the, the, the revelation route has not got us to got it. This is what the Bible teaches. This is what the Bible says. This is the Bible's teaching on war and sexuality, whatever it might be. No, it's a mess anyway. So instead of pretending it's not a mess, what about embracing it, Mike? What about going, God, we love mess. We love mess. Why do we love mess? Because life is messy. That's what real life is. Is. Anybody watch The Apprentice, The Australian Apprentice? I, I'm, a, I'm a sucker for trash TV and trash everything else. And one of my daughters and I, we, we watched The Apprentice and we discovered there's no apprentice because of the pandemic. Uh, so Alan Sugar goes down to Australia and he does Celebrity um, Apprentice, which is great because none of the Australian celebrities are remotely known to any of us. So they may as well be new, new people. So uh, I'll not spoil it all, because you're not going to watch it anyway, now, uh, because you're going to be too busy reading this book. Uh, so if, if you... Uh, one of the, the first bits, they had to do pieces of art and, and, and so on. And th- there was this guy who was a model. That's his job. Uh, and uh, the, the idea is, of course, well, you know, do a photo shoot of him. And they don't. And they do a photo shoot instead of... of, of um, how can I put this politely um, a very ordinary middle-aged man only they don't do a photo shoot of him they do a plaster cast statue thing of him and they're going oh god I, okay I mean first of all this is a little bit of graphic I, I apologize first, he was very hairy he was very very hairy uh, I was envious but you know he was he was very, very hairy so when it came to kicking the plaster off, he's going, ah! <laughs> they hadn't thought this through. <laughs> so the plaster came off with lots of hair on the inside, which was interesting. Um, so anyway, they, and, and, and they put this up, and there he was. And let's say there, there, there were lots of bulges and lots of sags and bits of hair. And my goodness, what, what bit of him is that that's down there? I'm not quite sure. So they're going, oh, dear, oh, dear, oh, dear. So then they had to bring this all to auction. And the, the teams that uh, sold the, 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 be- the greatest amount of money at the auction, all of that went to a charity, which was, was great. They had the six items, three each, in each team. The item that was far ahead, streets ahead, th- tens of thousands of dollars ahead in the bidding was this torso. And universally, all the people at the auction said, that's what a real man looks like. That's reality. That's what we are. Bellies and saggy bits and all the rest of it. We are not all chiseled adonises if there's such such a term. That's life. It's flabby and saggy and messy and smelly and not everything isn't quite where it ought to be. That's messy. And the Bible, I think, is gloriously messy, because life is gloriously messy. And I don't know how many of the officers there are in the room, 15, 16 people maybe in the room. And we take any bit of the Bible and we have 15 or 16 different thoughts and ideas and insights. Brilliant. Brilliant. As long as I don't require you to go with my insight or I don't try to force it upon you or impose it upon you. We can talk about it. We can get some sort of consensus. And if the consensus is based around genuinely, where is the voice of God in this? Where is the heartbeat of the heartbeat of the universe in this? What is something that stirs the very best of the very best inside me? I don't think we go far wrong. I think the Bible becomes an incredibly Wonderfully rich treasure trove, storehouse, endless supply, uh, bottomless reservoir, ever continuing spring of revelation. Not revelation as in God from us, but revelation of us going, oh, who would have thought? I've just had a revelation. <laughs> And I think that's what it's for. And the antidote to all of that, I think, is where we form, fall into and we form systems and ideas and ideologies. And we're convinced that we're right. And we're absolutely certain that our perspective is the only one. So I'm going to finish by a story, with a story. Um, recently as well, to scribbling bits of poetry and other things, I, I occasionally write, What's called flash fiction, where you've got to tell a story in—in this case, 300 words or or fewer. Uh, So you've got to tell a whole story. Uh, So this is a story that I'm sort uh, of—it's to do with the whole series or what I'm suggesting uh, we're thinking about over these four weeks. It's called the priest. Here's the story. He had always wanted to be a priest. At first, his father had not approved. He wanted the family line to continue. Uh, and he had no other sons, but his mother and grandmother were delighted. Eventually, his father came round to the idea to give him a new status in the community, and that was worth the price he had to pay. This was his first time as celebrant, and he looked out at the assembled faces with pride. His family were there, though sadly his grandmother had not lived to see this day. Many of his childhood friends were there as well. He didn't doubt that they now regretted the jibes that they'd thrown in his direction when he had made his vocation known to them. They were now in the crowd. He was at the centre of everyone's attention. Celibacy had not troubled him. He had sown a few wild oats before beginning his training, but he was happy to leave all of that behind him. Nothing compared with what he could now do. He had the power to bring God and people together. His words were sacred, his hands ordained. The joy was more than spiritual. It filled his mind and his body with tides of satisfaction, confession and absolution, anointing and healing. Body and blood, the power was in his hands. He raised his eyes to the heavens, lifted the jewel-encrusted gold above his head. His fingers caressed it as he proclaimed the holy mystery. And with divine ecstasy, he plunged the knife into the heart of the maiden that they had brought to the altar. What happens when we think we're right we've got it that's our religion of course we would say oh no 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 that was pagan and wrong and so on not in the minds of the people who believed and followed that particular religion done steve questions comments thoughts bible the writings i'm going with the writings